0: Hello and welcome to the very 116th Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. The podcast all about board games, board games and the people who love them. Today, I, Matt Lees, am joined by Tom Brewster. Hello. And Ava Foxfort. Hi. And what a podcast we have for you today. Unfortunately, it's remarkably hot. We've been inside a lot and we've played some games, some of which are quite good and some of which are not. We're going to be talking about... The world's first flick and write game, Sonora. Metro X is going to get a brief mention. We played that on the stream recently. Ooh, Metro X. Tom is returning to Africa, specifically Undaunted North Africa, a game he played last time and wasn't sure how he felt about. And guess what? He's still not sure how he feels about it. (laughs) Tom's also going to be talking about Far Away and... Ava is going to be dipping us into the frankly, ludicrously complicated and flag-filled world of imperial struggle. So without further ado, let's do a podcast. So on today's podcast, I don't believe any of us have any immediate plans to immolate in the current heat that we're living in in the UK. But if you do hear anybody gently melting away like a wax figurine, of a hairdryer then don't be alarmed and this may be a little bit of a fast and loose podcast because of that how are you folks doing today boy
1: it's 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 temperatures eh
2: there's a lot of temperatures out there they're
1: ranging from quite warm to very warm to even warmer than very warm and i hate all of them all at once
0: that's the full spectrum of warm <laughs> anyway uh, talking of warm and uh, talking of of praying for rain we're going to be going to north africa uh, again uh, for undaunted north african adventures. so tom you talked about this either last podcast or a couple of podcasts ago. i think it was last podcast. last
1: podcast, yes. and
0: you you weren't exactly down on it but you you felt like you were missing something, right? and you've gone back to africa since. i have. i've you've returned made some form of discovery.
1: <laughs> um yeah, it's it's a tricky one cuz i Talked about it on the last podcast, and I felt like I was missing something. And turns out maybe I kind of was, not in rules, but in strategy. Like afterwards, I got very paranoid that I'd got something like deeply wrong in the actual rules of the game itself. So I went back and reread and played a few more games. To people that maybe didn't listen to the last podcast, um, my thoughts on it being perhaps a little bit difficult to get into were largely centred around how the asymmetry of the game, which is a sort of new feature for North Africa, or at least the extent to which it's asymmetrical is a new feature, seemed to be like a bit of a trial and the new inclusions were kind of a little bit fluffy, and that were those were my main problems with the game initially. but. Uh, soon after the podcast went out, a commenter, um, Michelle De Jong, sorry if I got your name wrong there, um, pointed out some strategy tips in the comment section. There's a big list, you can check it out on the last podcast on the website. But after I followed those tips, the Italian side, who I was losing with consistently every single game, suddenly just became a hell of a lot better and literally just won every single game since when you apply those tips to the game which put me in a bit of a weird spot with it, because I've gone from one understanding of the game where the Italians are completely useless and it playing them felt like a bit of a chore to now being like an absolute powerhouse. Um, overwhelmed by Italians. <laughs> overwhelmed by Italians. There's your podcast title. But more than that, not only were the Italians winning, also the, uh, the later scenarios made the vehicles make a bit more sense in a more thematic context. There was an absolutely lovely mission where um the italians and british are kind of on other sides of this big long stretch of land and in the middle is one italian tank and it just needs to capture the tile that it's on to win the problem is it doesn't have a driver so the italians need to get the tank driver to the tank to then be able to move it out of that position and it becomes this frantic struggle this battle that's sort of set around this one tank And it was this wonderful amazing set piece that i was like oh maybe this game has some real kind of like hidden excellence behind it but it still feels asymmetrical in a way that can be kind of frustrating and the fact that I had six kind of air games before hitting the really good one makes it kind of tricky to recommend um so I kind of wanted to just alter my take a little bit from the last podcast and clear it up a little bit that I think that North Africa has this rich thematic challenge at its core but only if both players are experienced enough and they understand the overarching strategy from the get-go, and they don't mind the, the setup and the teardown that comes with um, each mission if they end quite quickly. I wouldn't say that it's better than Normandy, it's fundamentally quite a different game, but there's these little glimpses of magic under the hood, but it's just harder than just opening the box and saying go, like was the case in Normandy. The fact that I had to be kind of prompted by a comment rather than kind of naturally introduced to the strategy of the game through playing it was i i felt kind of stupid for that but also it's a problem that's appearing for a lot of people and i think that having a lot of experience with normandy and going into north africa with the same person might be wonderful but playing it with a new person that isn't familiar with the system that asymm- uh, asymmetry really can rub up the wrong way
0: yeah i think i think there's some interesting stuff coming out of this really in the way that They've chosen to use the Undaunted as a kind of brand name for both of these games. And having seen the boxes as well, they're quite similar, but they sound like very different experiences. And it sounds to a degree like Undaunted was very beloved. You see, I'm even referring to the original game as Undaunted. (laughs) Both of them have Undaunted in similar precedence on the box. So if you've heard Undaunted's great, and then you get one or get the other, it's quite different experiences. It seems akin to me in the way that video games sometimes will have expansions that will aim to really mix things up and try something quite different but those due to the nature of how video game expansions work they're only really accessible by people who've already finished the original bit and have experienced that and yeah but that's that's a funny proposition especially because you know i've played games with you enough to know that you're not dumb (laughs) and certified asymmetrical games you know you've played a ton of Root as well Yeah. so if someone like you who has a lot of experience with quite asymmetrical games is not able to grok um, asymmetrical strategies when faced with them that's not necessarily a great sign especially if there's a bunch of other people as well who are struggling
1: with it yeah i
2: mean i think there's something to be said about like with undaunted normandy i had a bit of trouble the second game that i played of it was significantly duller than every other game that i played with that system um and the reason for that was just that we got mired into a taking pot shots from across a thing rather than doing a (laughs) mad dash to try and grab something and like i think that they're they're interesting games in that the core system is actually like incredibly flexible but that flexibility means that it's actually kind of possible to play them wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I assume that if you're adding more asymmetry, if you're adding more weirdnesses, if you're adding more uh, variability of kind of like player ability, it's even more possible for you to just get into a thing where it's like, I'm not playing this in the most fun way but that feels like that's a strategically correct thing to do but it isn't necessarily and I think that That core system is so exciting and so flexible, but I think that there's some real risks that they're going to have to take if they're going to keep on trying to spin that into different directions in that the possibility of not understanding how to get the most out of this particular game becomes more and more of a problem the more variable it is.
0: And I think really that's a problem which already exists in games that has already been fixed quite easily, like uh Splotter Spiel games, for example. I think I enjoyed if I I may be misremembering this, but I'm pretty sure that both bus and roads and boats have a section at the end of the manual after it's explained the rules, being like, all right, there's the rules. Now here's like a half a page to a page of like (laughs) kind of kind of tips basically of being like Hmm. letting you know the implication of those things, of saying like, you know, something as simple as like, don't sell all of your geese you know uh (laughs) stuff like this you know i think there's something to be said for that and sometimes maybe i think people might feel like it's a failing of of the game's design but in a way just to give people a couple of sentences of like things to think about often players don't need them and often manuals for games have them where you think yeah i kind of got that but i think it's quite a good leveler especially in an asymmetric two-player game where there's not even really any scope for keeping an eye out for the other player in a way that's enjoyable at least with root with three or four players you can kind of point out to another player who's not doing too well oh have you thought about this etc but uh, in a head-to-head game i think there's nothing worse than losing whilst having the other player giving you
2: tips <laughs> <laughs> maybe but I, I guess that um i mean that was one of the things that uh the defense of Ro Pizza part Nine Seven <laughs> The Defence of Procyon Three Protion Three Procyon Three it Four?
1: It was Procyon the Defence of Procyon Three.
2: The game with the name that it's impossible <laughs> to remember that we played and enjoyed to some extent. Like that did do quite a good job of actually running each player through what the tips were for their particular yeah. thing. Like they, yeah, yeah. and you can do that quite easily and straightforwardly, and that gives people just a little bit of a of a helping hand along the way. Um I'm kind of surprised that Undaunted didn't didn't do that with North well, Africa, uh, and it may have. Yeah, I haven't looked at the rule book because the rule books are really really tight and sharp. And I remember the the Normandy one definitely like giving you a bit of a sense of what was going on, but it didn't tell you don't get stuck in two different forests taking pot shots at each other. <laughs> Which is what you kind of need to know to have the most fun.
0: It may have been as well uh, that it just didn't pop up that much during testing. It may have been that you have this, that people can play test games and show them to a whole bunch of people and then as soon as they
1: get out in the wild, people start doing quite strange things with them, especially if you have games that have very flexible systems. Yeah, I mean, the the rulebook itself doesn't have... It has tips for returning players. It has a start thing where it says, hey, here's what's different about this game um, to Normandy. But the the actual they does have some tips but they're put into the the liner notes of sort of every individual scenario and i think that if you're playing the scenarios one at a time having the tips kind of delivered to you piecemeal means that if you played t- like 10 games you'd have that whole strategy you know the strategy would become apparent over time by virtue of reading each of the individual tip boxes as you go but that obviously means that my first two games were like a travesty because there was The strategy wasn't yet apparent off the back of just the one tip that it has there and then comes back and forth as as we go, really. So I think it's there. It just you need to be if you're coming into Undaunted North Africa from a sort of completely new perspective, you haven't played Normandy before it. You kind of have to be prepared to have some games that you're going to pin down as a learning experience unless you actively seek out the like the strategy that that we ended up looking at. Um, in the podcast comments last week
0: so it takes more than one weird tip to understand italians that's
2: what we've all learned can i there's just one very like weird little offshoot there which is that like my so there's a there's a much 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 more in-depth and complicated and fiddly and faffy system called combat commander that i think is similar to a kind of like if you like undaunted but want it to be 10 times more fiddly there's a thing for you and that's combat commander. And one of the things that I had a discussion about recently is that one of the expansions could have easily been a standalone game. And that was the Mediterranean box, which would have been this North Africa conflict stuff. And one of the reasons it's supposed that it's not been made as a standalone game is because that side of the war is so asymmetrical and <laughs> has so much inequality in it that it's actually a really unpleasant starting experience so there's something quite Mm. interesting here in that like this is possibly two entirely different systems that have stumbled across the same block which is if you start putting things in north africa it has to be asymmetrical and that can be an unsatisfying thing if that asymmetry is literally yeah the side that one is probably gonna win (laughs) that's less fun from a game point of view if you're not specifically interested in like reliving bits of history and seeing what could have happened differently Um, i think
0: that's why world war ii um in the traditional european vein of it is the most popular um kind of war game setting that people keep going back to just because it had a bit of variation um and lots of battles lots of fights that involved destroying bridges and fleeing versus you know world war one with it's here's a bunch of men dying in the mud times a thousand or even you know the front with russia which was just incredibly grim and actually you know even in the world of video games for example it's interesting again that company of heroes which is a world war ii Uh, strategy PC game which is fabulous which sees you doing English American French German stuff in the first game and it's glorious and then the second game tries to go and approach um, the Russian side of things a bit more and it doesn't really work as well so maybe there's something generally to be said about the (laughs) fact that uh, people want these uh, head-to-head experiences of, of of traditional historical wars but as soon as you start to dabble in the areas which things were unequal or things were dramatically bloody in horrible ways. Weirdly, it's not fun. Uh, <laughs> who does that? War.
2: Say? It's not actually fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, war, sometimes not fun or good. You heard it here first. So, yeah, that's a return to Africa. Now, I'm going to be going also to a hot, deserty place as well. Uh, for Once again, a slightly unsatisfying experience actually that's i'm not even gonna i'm gonna go out all out here and say a horrendously unsatisfying experience um it's not often that we will um throw shade uh in any degree and i don't want to be mean about this game but at the same time it was something we covered in the news a few months ago and i think it was something i particularly said hey this looks bonkers i i'm really fascinated to see how this shapes out and this game is sonora which is the world's first flick and write which you may remember as being a game where you flick discs and then play four different discrete roll and write games on a big uh, plastic board thing that you write <laughs> on with pens and it's absolute bobbins unfortunately my my first non-serious complaint is that it's not called crock and ol and write which is just <laughs> crock and ol and write versus flick and write just beautiful it's just, a, it's a real mess, unfortunately. It looks like a really exciting thing. It's, uh, it comes in a bigger box to begin with where you think, oh, cool, this is like, could be a roll and write game that has a lot of, a lot of depth to it, a lot of structure. In reality, the box is a big box just simply because of the fact that the sheets you're writing on are very large and also the fact that the flicking takes place within the box. So it's one of those things where it pops up and you're flicking around within the inserts, which is also kind of the board. Just like with Crokinole, you have this board that has a hole in the center and you're flicking discs. And ideally, the best thing you can do is flicking a disc straight into the hole in the middle. That's about where the similarities end. Um, But what will happen is two to four players will be, you know, there's probably a solo game as well, but whatever, um, will be flicking discs into this central box and where they land in the four quadrants of this box will then dictate what parts of the roll and write style board you're going to be filling in but then also these discs have numbers on them which affect how good the thing you can do in that area is and the things you can do vary quite wildly one of them is just simply right whatever number on the disc you cross off that many boxes on that thing there's a whole bunch of different areas you can cross off when you fill them out if you're the first person to fill out all of the crosses then you get that many points etc if you've ever played a roll and write game where something happens and then everyone reacts to it and fills in a sheet and at the end people get different amounts of scores and the person with the best score wins when you really boil it down to the basics like that sounds like the most tedious thing in the world (laughs) it's not it's a lot of fun um then you've got another one which depending on the number on the disc allows you to put like tetris style shapes into a map and you have to enclose little cacti and it all has a really beautiful art style of lizards in the desert and owls and hairs and it's very very slick looking anyway the bottom line is you've got these four different mini games none of which are terribly engaging on their own and who writes what based on this system of everybody flicking discs taking in turns until all the discs are in the the tray at once and then looking at numbers and looking at what areas they're in and applying them and there's some elements of like, if you can get it to land on specific areas on the board, then you get like double points for things and you can do better things on your sheet. So, already to break it down, already for me, there's a whole bunch of things that don't quite land. First of all, unlike with a roll and write or, you know, flipping cards and writing, where there's some degree of everybody reacting to similar things, everyone's getting different results to begin with. So, you're not all doing the same different things with the same options, you're all getting completely different things secondly as all of the discs are ending up in the same place at the same time it means there's a lot of people's discs getting nudged around and pushed around into different areas as you add more of them and flick more of them into the space and then really the the third thing is the fact that because you're still doing it in a small box relatively with little wooden bits that don't really have a terribly satisfying weight onto a sheet of card that doesn't have a satisfying slickness or tactility, the flicking just kind of feels rubbish. So you've got (laughs) a game where you flick some things into a thing, doesn't feel very exciting, you spend some time trying to aim it and flick them bits into the areas where you want them to go, but then other people's things might knock them around and so there's not really any strategy to any of it, especially when you've really got no oversight on what's going on with other people. So you might try and knock people's things, but it's probably not a good idea. And then... It's just, it's one of those games where mechanically it seems cool and immediately is very unexciting and uninteresting. And then the physicality of it just actually plays against it. It's not a satisfying dexterity game. And then it's not a satisfying roll and write because there's no real sense of choice or strategy. Um, You're just always doing what you've got with whatever you end up with. Then just layers of complexity on top of it. And even some of the really basic problems, like the fact is when you've got A sheet that you're filling in with a little marker pen and a dry wiper that is, you know, it's probably like ten inches by ten inches. When you've got something of that scale, it doesn't matter if you're left-handed or right-handed. It's almost impossible to fill it in without constantly smudging things you've written on it and crossed (laughs) on it because, because it's massive. Like there's a reason why these things are always small and not, you know. So, I don't know. It was one of the first things I've, I've played in a while which was immediately like oh this looks like a fun idea to being like this is really not good it's really um yeah so that's the only reason i mention it we don't really like to pointlessly say hey this is something you've never heard of it's not very good but this was something we talked about in the past and we'd said hey this looks cool in the news and i've played it and it's really it's really not cool at all unfortunately it just doesn't doesn't land however what i will say um, as a bit of counterpoint, we played recently on stream Metro X, which oh, yes. is fabulous. Um, I really enjoyed that. I've played it again since. And what a delightful little box. It's just about the right size in terms of it being this small box, not tiny, beautiful design, beautiful bright colors, and a very different experience to Railroad Inc., which is very much a game of... Uh, getting crunched up and drawing little nice rails and drawing little nice rivers on things this is purely just numbers and crosses and trying to efficiently move along little overlapping railway lines in a way that's very pleasing super simple and tight as hell i think it's in a way for me it's the complete polar opposite of a game like sonora in the fact that (laughs) sonora seems to go in with a lot of new ideas and a lot of kind of exciting gimmicks whereas metro x is just coming out and being like hey there's nothing really remarkable or special about this it's just a little roll and write style thing but it's solid and actually after waves and waves of roll and write games which don't quite land or aren't as interesting as they could be it's really a pleasure to just play something which is
1: just Great. I wonder if the 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 crucial thing with Sonora that's maybe taking it down a little peg is 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 that element of player interaction that is maybe unwanted in a role than right. Because to me, quite fundamentally, they're solitary experiences that you play together. There's little interfering, but you're you know, are you saying that you're bump you can bump people's tokens with your own in a sort of crocodile fashion, crocodile fashion to remove them from an area that they'd want to fill in. Because that sounds like it's quite fundamentally frustrating if you are not aware of what other players board states are like and what they're trying to fill in. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's it's the fact that it's the fact that you've already got a slightly
0: busy overly it's it's the illusion of complexity in front of you really. It looks like there's a lot going on but there isn't, especially when you don't have the ultimate choice of what you're doing. And that's that's what it comes down to, is it? It might be an interesting strategy if as you say You had a choice and you're right. The frustration, I think, comes from the positioning of randomness. Like randomness is fine in games, but when people say games are too random, usually it just means that you've got randomness in too many different steps of it and in point randomness, which is, hey, we've just flipped a card and now we all have to work out what we're going to do with it or out point randomness of, hey, we all make our choices at the start and then at the end of the round, something random happens and we all have to just deal with it. Either of those can be fun and interesting, but both of them together are frustrating. And really to be looking at your board and thinking, okay, I'm going to choose to play my little five disc, which is really good. And I'm going to carefully flick it into this zone. Great. That's what I wanted to happen. But then at any point during the round, some new randomness can come in and be like, hey, that decision you made earlier, uh, somebody else just unmade it for you. And it might not have even been what they meant to do. It's just not, it's, yeah, at that point, having these boondoggles of like the appearance of complexity is just a frustration if it was a super super light game like a game we played at shucks last year was quite quite late at night which involved you know i can't remember what it's called but it involved flicking dice and the dice were animals and it was basically like wrestling sumo wrestling zoo animals trying to knock each other into holes and it was just flicking dice at other (laughs) dice that fantastic um (laughs) But there wasn't then a metagame to the side where you had to strategize about what you were going to do with the results of that round. You know, so it's just, it just didn't feel very well thought out. But anyway, I don't want to rag on it any further. But I think, yeah, I think you've hit on something there. I think it's it's the ability to to interact with other people's things. There's just one part too many in a in a pot that has a lot of stuff going on. I think we might now go to Ava for Imperial Struggle. Yep. How's that sound? We're going
2: live
1: to Ava for Imperial Struggle.
2: I'm stuck in the 18th century and everything's flags. (laughs) Oh, no. We're keeping that in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that seems like the intro to it, frankly.
2: I mean, honestly, that's probably the... I was worrying about how I was going to quickly sum up Imperial Struggle and I think I nailed it there. First try. Imperial Struggle is the uh, latest game from ananda Gupta and Jason Matthews, the uh design duo that bought you the former best ever game on BGG for about 5 years running, uh Twilight Struggle. Um they've both got struggle in the name because they are sort of related, but I think there's something where this ended up a lot more different than they were expecting and have a feeling they may be regretting having made those comparisons um, at this point. Although not in terms of sales because it's been doing really, really well. It is a big box war game from GMT Games who make in quite in-depth, slightly simulationist uh, board games about war and historical conflicts. Twilight Struggle was about the Cold War. Um, so the US versus Russia vying all across the whole of the world um, in a kind of not quite entirely military set of uh, weird violences against each other. Imperial struggle is more directly violent because it is in the 18th century and it is the story of uh, the Britain and France being awful, awful people all around the world. Mm. Yeah, um,
0: that's what we did. It was it was England, and then before us France, and then was it? I think it was the Dutch, and then the the Portuguese. There was a real like, all right, let's take it in turns to be awful. Yeah, um, <laughs> and then America had it. I think America are on the verge of losing it right now. I don't know who's going to get it next.
2: Who's going to be the worst next? Who knows? Um, yeah, it's 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 a funny one, like uh, playing at in, in like the present climate and. Um, really not wanting to kind of glorify any kind of colonialism or even remotely praise it it's very weird to play a game that mostly abstracts that stuff away and pretends that it's just it's all happening in the background Um, and the thing i think it does well is that the reason it's doing that is because it's doing it from the perspective of these two powers that basically saw everything in the world as the space in which they were going to have a little squabble with each other And that's what Imperial Struggle represents, it is like two people who, two countries that have seen the entire world through what can this benefit me, how can I use that benefit to attack my, the person who lives next door who I hate and have hated forever. Um, (laughs) There you go, that's European history in a nutshell. It's like going to
0: the tip and dragging back some horrible stuff (laughs) in front of their door. Yeah, but the tip was someone's house. The tip was
2: everyone else's house. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so what you're doing in Imperial Struggle from turn to turn, like the main thing is there's a map. It's got four sections on it, so you're either in Europe or America, the Caribbean or uh, India. These are all interlinked sections, and what you are doing is the same thing everywhere, which is each space can be either French, neutral, or British and the three genders the three genders (laughs) and you spend and you pull using resources things over to your side in the hopes that you can nab them like that is the core of what's going on here you're just flipping flags to try and take ownership of different spaces it's not that simple obviously <laughs> because this game is in was, a big box. Because it comes in a big box and it's made out of headaches. No, it's it was very hard to learn this game. Um but once we got the hang of it, it's actually quite straightforward. Uh, there's like three different types of resource points that you can use military, economic and diplomatic. And each of those can pull at certain spaces on the board using certain slightly different rules. So markets you need to take over with the economy, political spaces and alliances you need to take over with diplomacy and squadrons at sea and forts and everything else needs to be taken over with military power each turn you've got to grab a little tile that will either give you more military power or let you trigger an event card or not necessarily military power but one of those types of points Um, these investment tiles might let you trigger events that you've got in your hand and they might or but mostly are using them to manipulate these flags all around the board the rules for when you can and can't manipulate a flag is completely different for all of the different types of spaces and very nuanced and very weird and that's only what you're doing on the peace turns because every now and then a war breaks out in which again there's four different places where there'll be battle and those flags some of those flags will count towards the war and lend you support if you've got an alliance with the dutch in a war that the dutch got involved in then they'll join in on your side and you'll do slightly better in the wars which will shuffle around a few more things and make some flags move around and Oh, there's so much to this.
0: (laughs) I mean, this, like, I'm trying to envision this, and the the imagery that keeps coming up in my head is the the scene in Brass Eye when they say, it's war, and suddenly flip around the entire studio (laughs) to. to reveal a s- set-up specifically for war. Is it is it that?
2: It sounds a, boggling. Yeah, it's a bit boggling. It's a bit boggling. There's a main board that has all of these diplomacy spaces with flags on, and then there's a sideboard that is basically telling you what the next war is going to be, <laughs> and you're always able to kind of chuck tiles into that as well as manipulate flags on the board to see what's going into the next war. So that's not all of it, though. Because actually also in each of those four segments on the board, there's a varying amount of victory points that will be available if you have the most of that at the end of a turn. So there's kind of measuring for just having the most in these four big areas. But that's not all of it because also all of the markets, (laughs) all of the markets have a different good attached to them. And again, each turn you'll draw three global demand tiles that means that everybody's looking for those goods at the moment so those goods are worth extra points at the end so what you've essentially got is three different area control games happening on the same board at once like that's probably the simplest way i can explain it i'm I'm looking at a picture of the board
1: right now and i would really encourage uh curious listeners to to source an image of this board because it looks like you know, vomit made of continents and lines and numbers. It's oh I absolutely... think it's beautiful. <laughs> it's gorgeous.
2: <laughs> no,
0: I'm not even joking. Really? I'm not even joking. I like.
2: think it I think it's gorgeous. I think it's a really lovely map and I think it's really interesting the way it's kind of like focused on certain bits and and when you can look at it and you can see how there is these different layers of it's all area control. It's all do you have the most of something in this type of space but those spaces the 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 areas are like a, a, a horrendous Venn diagram where each individual space could be in effectively three different parts of the area control that you're going to be looking at is clever yeah
0: it's it's yeah it's it's i can see why it's it's kind of simultaneously very readable and very unreadable yeah um but yeah i i don't know like i can understand why why you it's kind of hellacious, but I think it's kind of gorgeous in the fact that rather than having this traditional, um, you know, I say a real map of the world, you know, the, the the world map that we all currently use. But instead of having that, it just it does have these like super detailed aspects of being like, well, look, here's a big chunk of the world. But then also here's like a big chunk, of a tiny chunk of the world zoomed in a lot, because obviously... Um, in these days, you would have these tiny chunks of the world, which was super, super important. You know, especially in the in the time of boats. Often these <laughs> these places in the world now that we look at that are just actually like, well, hang on a minute, that's just a little tiny island. How can that have been important? Turns out, at that point of time, tiny islands really important. <laughs> See, Britain, uh, and yeah, it's 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 kind of cool to have that kind of macro and micro. Uh, represented on the actual full board rather than just being like well obviously it's all to scale but then this little island is worth 20 points
2: yeah i mean it's similar to uh virgin queen by ed beach has a ludicrously distorted map of europe at its heart And what it says in the manual is that what it's doing is it's saying, this is Europe through the eyes of Queen Elizabeth and the monarchs of this era. (laughs) Which basically means that the Netherlands is about ten times the size of anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Even though Netherlands is actually really tiny. It was so important that it has to be a bigger space. So you've got this monstrous blob of Europe. And this is what Imperial Struggle is doing. It's saying... These bits of the world were so important at this time that they were all that mattered. And this is why slavery is erased and ignored throughout the game, for the most part, is because these people didn't care. (laughs) Like, it wasn't something that they saw. What they saw was the economic benefit, like, which is horrific, but it's also true. It's how that happened. It's how people were able to do that. Like, racism was a tool of the economy, like it's grim and i don't think it like addresses it head on but i do think i do think there's something in historical gaming that lets you see things from a an interpretation see things from a perspective and kind of understand why people allowed things to happen and that's because they didn't care like it wasn't important. It wasn't about, it didn't open up a new market or it did open up new markets, but that was just all happening underground. And as long as it was doing that, it didn't care about the morality of anything. And I think- Yeah,
0: I think that's it, interesting.
2: Yeah, I think it does a good job of that. Um, and it was, so it's pitched as being like Twilight Struggle, a game that you could probably play in an evening and like much so smaller scale than a lot of, well- Bigger in scale, but smaller in effort than a lot of these big war games. And I will say, I suspect, like, our game went a very long time, but it was also one of those things where the first turn of eight took an hour and a half. The eighth turn took about, like, 15 minutes, you know. So I can imagine this getting very, very quick once everyone knows what they're doing and and, and is there. And I say everyone, it's only two players, so you've just got to get someone... Who you can convince to kind of dive into this
0: <laughs> but i feel like with something like this a lot of the joy is in in that learning of it really because it is something that's trying to be representative of a certain type a point in history and so once you know it and you play it head to head um it would take away some of the aspects of of the the slow realizations about how the nature of things all function and 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 kind of putting that into some sort of lens of of history
2: yeah and this is actually one of the things where i think the comparison with twilight struggle is quite hard on this game in that so this is this is a weird thing twilight struggle represents the cold war and the core of it is that you have these event cards that you either use for doing operations or trigger a very particular event that sets up something weird happening in the world And everything in the game is built around these event cards. And most of being good at that game is knowing the deck of cards well enough that you can manipulate things or stop stop attacks from coming before they've even come because you know what is in the deck and what might screw your plans over. Imperial Struggle minimises and minimises and minimises its event deck to the point where I think that there probably is a little bit of a benefit to knowing the deck. But it's not the whole game. Like, the, the core game is making decisions about where you're going to put your flags. And I think that's great in one sense, because my main criticism of Twilight Struggle is that it is hideous to play if you aren't good at it and you're playing someone who is okay at it. Like, when you are learning Twilight Struggle, I, I had like four games in a row where I started a nuclear war in the same way by accident. <laughs> um, which isn't actually that fun because I just couldn't work out a way to stop getting caught in this trap.
0: I mean, it's gauche, isn't it? Really?
2: I mean, it's definitely rude to start an imperial, to start a nuclear war.
0: Just to keep doing it the same way again and again. You know, <laughs> yeah. people are going to be talking about you. you know? oh, like, it was uh, so embarrassing. I've done it
2: again. It was so embarrassing because it was literally the same card, and every time I fell for the same. Oh. Trip, like, I'm just going to hold on to the CIA because I don't want to reveal my heart to people. It's like, oh no, but now. The CIA just started a nuclear war. Damn you, CIA. Anyway, (laughs) Imperial Struggle doesn't really have that, which makes it theoretically a lower barrier of entry to get into. Like, you can start playing this and you can start being good at this as soon as you've understood the intensely labyrinthine rules. (laughs) Easy. But Twilight Struggle has this huge range of narratives that can come out of it. And it never really feels like you're just playing an area control game. It always feels like you are wrestling against the threat of nuclear war. Like it has this tension. Yeah, well, I guess it.
0: it's, I guess it's
2: because it's able to
0: um to directly address and deal with the source material. Um, yeah. whereas I guess with something like this, for obvious reasons, uh, it's hard to do that. You know, yeah. it's it's an interesting one. I think yeah. there's something the to be said the only really message for... you
2: get out of it really is that. These two countries only viewed the world through these very tiny lenses, and that led to a lot of war. <laughs> it's basically what you learn from imperial struggle. I wouldn't say I'm, you know, it's got a great, uh, it's got what is called a playbook, which has n- historical notes about all of the events that cards that happened, all of the tiles that might come up, all of the, all of the things. So there's loads of facts you can learn from doing it. But I didn't get that sense of playing a weird bit of history. I got a sense of saying, oh, wait a second to those people. Right then the world was a board game. So this feels like I'm playing a board game.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's really, really interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's it's. That, that era of time, even before then, I remember when I went to Bali a few years ago and was talking to some locals and learning some of the history about it. And obviously, the, Bali was a place which was taken by the Dutch many times. Well, it was interesting. It was used by the Dutch and used by the people. But a couple of times in history, the Dutch tried to take it outright. and They just basically turned up and were like, look, this, is, this, is, this place is too useful for us. Again, tiny, rich little island. And they were like, this is too useful. We're going to take it. So they turned up with all their armies, basically, with the idea of saying, hey, listen royal family of Bali like you know you're gonna work for us now we're gonna be in charge and what happened was they turned up and basically said this is all gonna be ours now and they knew they were coming so the entire of the Balinese extended royal family turned up in their best clothes and met them at the shores and all just killed themselves all at once at which point the Dutch just thought all right well we're gonna go but you know it's because it was like it was business they were like we want you to run this thing but then they thought oh this entire infrastructure has just killed themselves this is not it's not any use for us to own this now because there's no infrastructure I and mean, we can't be bothered saying right, our own. So they just left. That happened twice over a period of about, I don't know, 50 years maybe. Um, they just turn up and be like, right, we're back. We're going to be in charge. Oh, they've, they've all killed themselves again. Just the weirdly cold reaction to stuff that was so um, so human and so intense uh, of it being like, well, yeah, we want this though because, because, yeah, it being like a board game is a really, really uh, interesting way of putting it. And I think, again, another reason why games that include this stuff flippantly without thinking about it it's uh it's more food for thought
2: yeah i would struggle to say to what extent it really wrestles with that stuff but i think it's possible to play it in a way where you wrestle with that stuff and you engage with what was happening and as soon as you look at these spaces and realize that they were people's homes (laughs) like that what was happening when these flags were being put out where people were being dominated and abused and killed It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to do. And it's shameful to realize that that's a huge part of our history.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Although it's history, lots and lots of us have shared. I guess it's good context these days for whenever people say, hey, it's just business. Because in the past, just business has been just bad. There, Mm. I said it. There, I said it. It's just, it's just bad. Right. Well, onto something, hopefully a little more lighthearted tom would you like to take us somewhere far away
1: yeah let's go far away um i mean speaking of i mean the the business that happens in far away is less uh makes you less sad about the state of the world in general uh as it's abstracted but it's still quite mean um oh no (laughs) turn the car around (laughs) there's a few bits of mean business that happen in far away but it's all it's fun fantasy sci-fi nonsense so hey let's have uh, some escapism um faraway is designed by alexander jerabek and published by cherry picked games and it is one of the most uh fascinating games i've played this year but i don't think i can recommend it uh without burying the lead that's the the <laughs> the overarching take for faraway faraway is a co-op uh, mission-based adventure game it's exclusively for just two players Um, and in the game you're playing as astronauts taking a janky old spaceship to investigate alien planets and hopefully not die. The first thing I want to mention is how much love and care and life there is in all of the writing in the rulebook and in the game text itself. It's so vivid and evocative and charming and lovely. It's got this janky corporate sci-fi angle that's consistently just wonderful and charming. Uh, The fourth mission is especially... uh, Especially the fourth mission is especially great word (laughs) especially is a great word we'll keep it in um the fourth vision is especially uh exciting you go to this planet to remove evidence that you were ever there because the planet has been discovered to be privately owned property (laughs) um which is just wonderful (laughs) um and there's also like there's a great part each of the missions in the game imagine it like a sort of you've got these mission cards that are telling you what your objective is to accomplish uh, each time. Um, and one of the the side missions is using this giant turret called the murder turret to massacre some local wildlife. And after you do it and feel bad about it, you get another transmission that says, okay, we want you to write a report on what all the meat tastes like. Go around and eat all the alien meat you've harvested with this giant horrible <laughs> murder turret. It's wonderful. Um, so there's a lot of strange, kind of like janky corporate, horrible sci fi that's that's humorous and silly and ridiculous. Um and the special rules as you're reading really kind of like leap out of the page. Um and it's great. I really liked I the rule book was an absolute joy to read, uh, from start to finish. Um however the game itself is less enjoyable um most of the game is exploring planets by flipping over hexes and completing these missions uh, and each mission has multiple side missions and multiple steps and to do them you'll take actions in turns with your partner you'll be sort of moving gathering and moving resource cubes around to build buildings uh, with those cubes and accomplish those objectives by building stuff on empty terrain and and navigating dangers that appear throughout the main one of which is the local wildlife so on the board the living things are you your partner, and all of the horrible creatures and aliens that live um, on the planet. Um, so, once you've done your turn of moving these, taking all of your actions, the alien life forms will then take their turn. They will, and <laughs> this is my favorite thing in the whole rule book. After your turn is done, you realistically and objectively log events performed logically by animals and yourself. Roleplay them. <laughs> that is my favorite acronym ever. <laughs> um, you decide that's what, so the animals themselves have a limited set of actions, but you actually role-play what they do on their turns. So you do your turns as normal, but then the, the aliens, you'll decide just by looking at their, um, the information on their cards. So like, for example, an alien might have a herbivore diet. It likes to hang around in packs it prefers watery habitat and it's got a special rule that means it can like latch on to other life forms right so when it gets to deciding what they do you don't do it based on like a list of instructions you just say i think it does this because that makes sense for its list of instructions and there are loads of different aliens the box is literally full of plastic baggies with individually illustrated aliens and individual cards with individual behaviors um and you randomly generate which ones you're using every single time so they create this wonderful tapestry of of this kind of amazing imaginative space in which the game is going to take place in because you get this different loadout of of creatures every single time messing up your plans in in their own ways and the tiles you're drawing are going to be different spaces which means that you get this a different story each time you do a mission which is just i was like loving that when i was reading the rule can i say so far this just sounds well cool i know right (laughs) uh it just reading the rules is just it sounds so good and then the second um so so aliens are gonna interfere with your plans uh during the game so you're trying to build like a building to get off the planet safely and complete your objective um but the aliens are gonna have a problem with you being there so uh if they attack you you'll take injuries and injuries dynamically affect your behaviors and fending them off will increase your hunger if you punch them so you're like getting exhausted like kind of scaring them away uh and but or actively scaring them away so not doing any violence on them at all will increase your loneliness which is your two stats for each of your um uh spacemen um are you saying that if i actively scare everyone away i'll become lonely (laughs) not everyone every alien away yes you will everything everything i've got some plans (laughs) But both of those stats, Hunger and Loneliness, decrease by one every turn as well. So Hunger decreases always, and Loneliness always goes down by one. But only if, the second one, Loneliness, will only go down if you start on a different tile to your friend. (laughs) So if you're on the same tile, you just wipe all the Loneliness away. So Hunger is quite straightforward in the game, you just get rid of it. Loneliness you can cure by, you know, you eat something. Or Loneliness you can cure by being next to one another. However, <laughs> that was too real. It's yeah, like, yeah, right. <laughs> I've cured my loneliness by eating a whole lasagna. <laughs> um, it's very true. Hunger is straightforward to solve because you can just eat something. But loneliness is a bit more exciting because if you're not in the same tile, not only will you become lonely, but you are also unable to communicate with the other player whatsoever. It's dead silence. And the reasoning for this in the rulebook is wonderful. It's basically like the company, the space company you work for couldn't afford radios (laughs) um (laughs) so it completely changes how you talk about how you think about the game because you have to make all your plans when you're in the same space and you have to trust each other to negotiate problems as they arise and you have to set rendezvous points and hoping that you know you're not going to get distracted by some wild thing that you've just discovered and you are going to meet at the same place at the end of your turn to cure your loneliness and chat about your plans going forward and it comes to this lovely central kind of gooey core where meeting is a purpose in the game because it's a purpose within the game and also outside of it because the relief comes from meeting up and removing your loneliness and talking about the state of the game every single time you do it which is just like a lovely ebb and flow where you have these turns of kind of loneliness where you're plodding around doing stuff and then you meet up and go right what are we doing next however (laughs) i think this is all lovely in practice and I was so excited reading that evocative rulebook and getting ready to play the game, but I don't know if it comes together completely in the finished product. I really want this to have another edition or come out in some other form or people to kind of believe in it to be kind of a better product than it is, because at the moment, I don't know if I can recommend it completely, for me at least. Um... Essentially, what it comes down to is the game has so much going on, but a lot of it is bloat and hassle to set up and tear down repeatedly. There is so much in this box that's crammed into it, and there's so much to sort through, and there's a lot to kind of set up and tear down every single mission. And the monster behavior, whilst it's really cool to have this kind of roleplay situation, it works until it doesn't. Because... Often you'll get a state where you have all these vegetarian monsters with nothing to eat, so they just kind of hang out together and move around a little bit, which is kind of dull, and you have to pick up all their individual tiles and shift them around. And also, because often you might have a situation where your friend ends a turn next to a carnivorous monster, and the way that it works is player one does the first slot monster, player two does the second slot monster, player one does the third, player two does the fourth you might get into a situation where the most accurate thing would be for that monster to just kill your friend, which loses you the game instantly. And you don't really right. want to do that. And I think this would work better if it was a smaller scale, but because the mission, because the game has a recommended playtime of like, you know, two plus hours potentially, undoing all of that work, just because it would be realistic for that monster to eat your friend is narratively so refreshing and fun. But in the game, you just don't want to do it practically.
0: But it's funny, right? Because, you know, it, we've said many, many times for many years that uh, people working in video games should be looking at board games and should be looking at what's going on in that space. Particularly, you know, we said this a lot about five years ago where I think that there was just a ton of innovation and really interesting stuff happening. Let's not to say there's still not in board games, but there was a point where it was like, heck, are you not looking at this? You should be looking at this. Mm. Whereas in this, it, it feels like it's stumbled upon a video game problem that is so easy to fix you know just just do the system shock thing of being like yeah you can die but you're not really dead you'll come back like you know you can there's maybe a penalty because there's so much fun to be had in allowing you to role play horrible monsters murdering each other but you're right if it's at the cost of you then losing all of this feeling of progress and having you know it's you look at things like this where another video game Xcom where really like losing is the story like yeah. sometimes you don't lose and that's cool eventually it's satisfying but but losing is the story the story is uh, yeah well, all of everybody died and it was really horrible that's <laughs> that is the story right yeah and that's fun but it's only fun because there's no other story if you kept having to go through this overarching plot again and again and again it would be awful but because there isn't any story other than hey, here's a bunch of fine folks that you care about and then they're going to die, that's fine. So it's it's interesting that they've stumbled on this because you're right. Like already all of this sounds super exciting, but when you have to role play a terrible creature
1: that wants to eat your face, you're not (laughs) going to eat your face, are you? Which is, yeah. And I mean, and the only reason that you wouldn't do that is because, isn't because it, wouldn't create a fun story like it could create a fun story and it could be like a satisfying end the problem is is that you want to then you want to see all the content in each mission you want to turn over those cards and do the next thing and it just going back to square one is tricky with a game that takes so long to set up and tear down um and also because there's also that it has almost roguelike quality to it sometimes because you start off with a you know a little area where where a starting area around a crash site with stuff you can see but you're drawing random tiles and random monsters and that means that it's incredibly evocative and fresh and exciting when new stuff happens but also you can end up with a mission where like oh we just need we need one bioplastic and then we can start the mission and you just can't find it and you're stumbling around you know like adding Mm -hmm. more and more and more aliens to the um to the map increasing the turn length and just making it kind of more and more sluggish and it's and it's tricky like There's so many little problems like this that are due to the game being kind of this low budget labor of love, which is a shame. I don't want to be too negative on it because ultimately I'm hoping that somehow it gets re-released in some more polished form with kind of some maybe like nicer components and slightly like fresher rules that are a bit more slimmed down, a bit more pointed at what the game wants to be, which is a storytelling engine. This will be like someone's favorite game. And it would be, you know, great if you could, you know, set it up on your table and keep all of the set up there and just kind of bash out as many sessions as you want. But there's a level of jank and a level of having to completely tear it down and set it up every time that doesn't quite do it for me personally.
0: It's that great. line is, is hard to walk. And I think that's something that Gloomhaven sometimes struggles with, um, yeah. despite being great. Is this this thing of going yes, but we have to do all of this setup and all of this admin, and of you course. kind of imagine what would Gloomhaven be like if every time you walked into a room, the enemies were two random enemies? And I think the answer to that would be it would be hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> cause, cause, absolutely. You know, there's a reason why the missions in Gloomhaven don't ever tend to have more than three, maybe four different types of enemy, because yeah, like keeping track of all that stuff beyond that, it, and doing the admin is not fun. Yeah. So there's there's a degree to which like having some control and pure randomness in board games, I think, is a uh, is a is a fickle beast. But it's a shame because, yeah, I think looking at the artwork for it, I think it's I actually like really love the style of it. It's kind of simple, but I think Mm. the graphic design is really cool. Um, I think it's really evocative of a certain era of
1: science fiction. Uh, i think the the box is brilliant the graphic design and the illustration in and of themselves are both really wonderful like the illustrations on the little tokens and yeah the box is gorgeous and the rule book is lovely to read as well because it has this lovely sleek retro feeling graphic design that is lovely the problem the only the biggest problem with with the artwork is that each of the individual monsters have individual monster tiles with a drawing on them but they're all brown and you can't distinguish from them at a glance easily it's tricky to read um yeah and that, that's, you know, that again, I don't want to make that sound like that's like a, you know, a huge issue with the game. I think the main issue um, is that the monsters sometimes just not doing anything is that often you can end up having s- turns going by where the monsters just kind of just chill and don't do anything or they like sort of infight with each other while you just kind of go about moving cubes and it loses a lot of its richness. So you either have a story which is incredibly perilous and you die at the end or a story that's a breeze and there didn't seem to be much in between.
0: Still... What a fascinating thing! It so doesn't sound like it quite lands it, but I've always got plenty of time for things that really attempt to do some wild and weird yeah. stuff.
2: Yeah, it's great. I really love the um, the the lack the lack of communication stuff. I think is really clever, but I do mm. think it's like an incredibly like high risk thing to do in a game. Like one of my favourite moments in any game that I've ever played ever was um a game of the grizzled that i played at a convention with some with some people who didn't quite know each other but the person who interlinked all of us and the reason why we knew each other and the person who was kind of like raconteuring the table together got made mute by the game like got a trauma and they weren't (laughs) allowed to talk and it was just this kind of like we were all so heartbroken at the fact that the person who was being the social glue in that particular situation couldn't talk that we worked so much harder to do that to fix that problem than anything we'd done in trying to win the game and I think like playing with non-communication and inability to communicate is is fascinating and I think it's a really powerful thing to do but it's really hard because you came here to sit with people and talk with them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah i've got to say like i've had similar problems uh with mysterium in the fact that it's absolutely i think it's fabulous if you're playing mysterium with people who understand games and really grok game rules it's just brilliant but whenever i try playing it with families it's still really good but it's hard in the fact that if you're teaching everyone else the game and you don't feel like anyone is super gamey then you basically have to be the ghost because it's otherwise it's a bit too much you know, <laughs> yeah, but then you have a situation where people don't get things, and you have to start talking, and it kind of <laughs> spoils the feel of it. You know, um, I watched
2: a father and son like nearly tear strips out of each other because the dad thought that the son was like intentionally being oblique by giving the cards, and I just kept on having to say it over oh and over again, gosh. like. <laughs> no, no, no. They've got a very limited amount of cards. They are trying their best. <laughs> Don't get angry with them. Like this is the game. <laughs> like it was it was um it was awkward. It was awkward. I it feel awkward, awkward
0: just thinking about that. Yeah. Um so that's fun. <laughs> and what a fun podcast we've had. Uh, finally before we leave you for this time, we'll just mention a couple of things that've been popping up on the site over the last few weeks. Uh, Tom you went to Paris amazingly breaking all of the rules about uh, in fact there aren't any rules in everyone's
1: just given up (laughs) you swam yeah I got over there just just to film a review it's a shame that I didn't get to do it on the streets of Paris I had to do it in uh, a Parisian garage that looks uncomfortably like my own Um, but nevertheless You know, it was an authentic Parisian review. (laughs) And that was a delightful uh, review of a game called... What
0: was it called? City of the Lights? Yes,
1: Paris, la Cité de la Lumière. Which lots of people were quick to say apparently isn't accurate. It should be like La Ville Lumière or something. But it's on the box, so I feel like I can stand by that. (laughs) Um, It's great. If it's what they called it, it's what they called it. It is.
0: It is what they called it. I had a lot of fun watching that review. It's a very pretty thing of just building up these little... Cities and lamps. Uh, it looked gorgeous. It yes. was immediately one of those visual things where I thought, oh, I want to lay some of those tiles down. Absolutely. So do check out that incredible Parisian review on youtube.com, the fabulous new website. Also on youtube.com, I went and played a game called Cairn, which is a fabulous two player game of druids playing rugby in an increasingly complicated arena. It's a fabulously simple thing to set up, it takes literally moments and it's delightfully chunky. The rules are so basic, but then basically the game becomes a game of increasingly ratcheting up the complexity until one person messes up, and then it's over. And uh, yeah, honestly, a delight. That's from Matigo, and actually that's a game by Christian Martinez, I believe the name is, which is the same chap who did Inish, a shut up and sit down favourite. So if you have listened to our stuff and watched our stuff for a while and also love Inish, then do go and check out our review of Can. Can you believe it? And also, I think uh, we might have a review of Pandemic Legacy Season Zero, which hopefully will have gone up on the site this week unless something has gone wrong. But hey, it's a pandemic and things are always going wrong. (laughs) And... That is about all of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast that she wrote for this time. A little bit light on my, I don't know how you folks are doing with being able to play games with people. I've got a game friend I've added to my bubble, but I kind of had to make the difficult choice this month of, do I want to go and see my family a little bit or play board games with one friend? And I I decided to go and see family, which means I've now got a two week cool down period um, before I can go Mm. and sit inside with anybody else. So I'm, I want to played a board game. I want to play a board game. <laughs> itching
1: for board games
0: <laughs> You got to make a choice. I'm,
2: I didn't even mention the fact that I was playing Imperial Struggle via the medium of Vassal, which is a ridiculous online tool for playing wargamey type things. <laughs> oh, and no. oh my words! I said that our first turn took an hour and a half. I think at least like forty-five minutes of that was trying to work out how on earth to use <laughs> that system. It did the job. It worked, but oh my word yes.
0: that does feel like an important addition Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was doing it through treacle, your honour um, which is why it took forever alright, that's the podcast and we'll see you next time in two weeks for another episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast goodbye bye.
1: Oh. that was so in sync, that bye
2: that was terrifying,
0: it <laughs> was lovely it was lovely